You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, former West Point grad, went on to serve over 20 years in the military and started his own life coaching business and continues to work in the veteran space, helping veterans transition, combat suicide, and a whole lot more. We'll get to him in just a moment. First, our normal reminders to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Our website, HazardGround.com, that's where our Amazon promotion goes on. Uh, getting ready for back to school. Are we getting ready for back to school? I think we are. Um, but anyway, if you're going to do some back to school shopping on Amazon, go to hazardground.com first. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. Whatever you guys spend, we'll get a percentage of. And then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. Easy way to help out veterans and veterans charities just by doing Amazon shopping. But you got to go to hazardground.com first. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Smash that like button. Give a thumbs up to all the content there. We appreciate you guys watching on YouTube as well. All right, I told you a moment ago, this week's guest, a 21-year veteran of the United States Army, West Point grad, retired lieutenant colonel, had three deployments to Afghanistan, and in his post-military career, founded a company called Ordinary Hero Coaching, where he works through executive leadership, uh, veterans transition, mental health, all the things, also works with the Commit Foundation as an ambassador and sponsor. He is Jason Roncaroni joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jason, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Oh, listen, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I came across you on LinkedIn, uh, which, you know, military space LinkedIn is is very uh, it's like a dearth of really smart people. And I just started reading up on you um, and found your bio incredibly interesting, your time, your deployment experience, what you did in Afghanistan. And then, of course, the coaching role. Right. I mean, I, I, anybody who is taking an active um, role in veterans post-military service is is always somebody I'm interested in talking to because. There's nothing cookie cutter about it. No two veterans in their transition or post-military life go through the same experiences because they didn't experience combat the same way and they didn't experience the military the same way. So everything's a little bit different. And so I, I love the idea of what you're doing on multiple different levels. And um, again, I I have to tell the audience this at the upset. It's incredible that you're sitting here talking to me. You survived a heart attack that you suffered on a run. Uh, and you posted about this on LinkedIn. I was just like, this is right after I started following. I'm like, wow, that is insane. And you're sitting here with a smile on your face, obviously blessed. But, you know, for as somebody who's in good physical condition, the idea that uh, your, your, your ticker stopped ticking in the middle of a run had to be a little bit uh, uh, scary, to say the least. Yeah, it was, um, you know, what was interesting is, is that, uh, you know, I, I think we all bring back things from our service and we package them in different ways. And like so many, you know, people who, who have experienced different combat types of scenarios throughout their, their tenure in the service, I assume that I had everything under control that I could handle everything. Now, keep in mind that I'm saying this while at the time I'm, you know, I'm suffering from a lot of night terrors. I wake up in the middle of the night. I don't know where I am. There are nights when I'm, my wife tells me I'm screaming in my sleep and stuff like that. So for context in my head, I'm thinking that I've got everything under control. And uh, apparently I didn't. And one of the things you learn a lot about yourself, obviously, when you go through something like this, uh, I had what was called, what's often called a widowmaker heart attack. It's the left anterior descending artery that was blocked. It's got about a 12% survival rate. That's if you're in a hospital. Um, And I've got no history of cardiac disease in my family. I had a physical two days earlier. My blood work was perfect. My blood pressure was great. And what was interesting is, is that when I was with the cardiologist, uh, as I was recovering in the hospital, he noticed that I military service and he let me know that veterans are about six times more likely to have uh, coronary artery disease. Uh, I no idea. Uh, because again, if you look at my history, I, I equally have no idea. I just learned that <laughs> about seven years ago. <laughs> and so I didn't, I had no idea. And um, he was like, you know, that, that might be part of the reason why. So, I'm thinking that I've got everything under control, right? And I didn't. 
basically what happened was, is I was just kind of pushing everything in and it just manifested its spot in that artery. That's the only artery that I have blocked. And, um, you know, I'm very lucky to be here. And the more you read about it after the fact, you know, the more kind of it, it gets scary after, you know, in the aftermath, because I had no idea. Yeah. I had no, never had any chest pain. And when I woke up in the hospital, I still didn't have any pain. Um, so if you didn't tell me that this happened, I would never have believed you. But to me, it was a reminder that, hey, Jason, you brought a lot of junk home and you can either really deal with it or uh, it may show up in ways that are not very healthy for you like this one did. Wow. Unreal. Well, God bless you. Glad you're still here with us. Um, go back to the beginning, West Point. What made you go there? Did you always want to be in the military? Did you always love West Point? No way. Um, <laughs> uh, I didn't know anything about the military when I was growing up. Same. Uh, my my infomercial for the military was all of those classic 80s movies. The appropriate documentaries, you know, Red Dawn, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon. That's what I thought the military was for me. Um, I came from a lower middle class family. Um, both my parents were very poor growing up and uh, they wanted their kids to go to college because they thought that's how you break out of the lower middle class. I didn't know a damn thing about West Point. I got invited to go to this recruiting event, which was put on by the local congressman. And I thought it was going to be like any of these other kinds of recruiting events that you have for these colleges you kind of show up put your name on a mailing list and you're out the door and I walked into this place and there's a cadet there there's reps from the congressional office there's alumni reps everybody's wearing business professional and I walk in wearing my ripped up Led Zeppelin concert shirt my stonewashed jeans because that was a cool thing in the 80s and my Chuck Taylor high tops but I bought their pitch you know, not because I fell in love with the army, but because it was different and it was paid for. And honestly, that's how I ended up at at the West Point. It's it's funny. I, I was very similar in the sense I, it was just the, the ROTC route. My, my grandfather was in World War Two. My stepdad was in Vietnam. But, yeah, obviously, it was nothing that was ever talked about. I wanted to go to college and yep. ROTC was the easiest way to pay for it. And. My indoctrination to the military, I had hair down to here, down to my neck, down to my back, my shoulders. When I put on an ROTC uniform, I get yelled at every day for not. But because I wasn't under scholarship yet, they couldn't make me cut it. And they didn't want me to leave the program. Like, I just, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, yes. you know, serendipity, right? But yeah, yeah, it was it was very similar. I was I was indoctrinated into the The only thing I knew was be all you could be. Uh, that, that was. Yes. I didn't even see Full Metal Jacket as a kid. I didn't see it until after I got in the military. I'm like, oh, this is what I should have watched before I came here. That's uh, right. But regardless. So you end up at West Point. Um, your experience there. It's funny. I talk to a lot of people who have gone to West Point. I serve with people. It's, it's, it's varying degrees of how people view it. Um, some people went to, went to West Point and they were absolute studs and studettes. And other people went there and just sort of skated by and you know, hey, somebody's got to finish last year uh, kind of deal. You know, uh, which more side did you lean towards? I, I did. I did well. Uh, I do well in an academic and a school type environment. I mean, learning is probably one of my strengths. And so anytime I'm in a situation where I'm going to learn, I I did well. Um, you know, I, I was very, I mean, like probably most service academy people, I was remarkably immature um, I was very arrogant. I had all of that going for me. Right. Um, I graduated and, you know, even though I came through this leadership crucible, quite frankly, I was pretty much of a jackass when I became a junior officer in the military, you know, and then you send me down to flight school and that just kind of doubles down on all of that. And, uh, probably from the time I graduated from the academy until, you know, I hit my thirties was, was really the time in my life where I really started to grow up. Yeah. Uh, you, you got a BA, a bachelor's of arrogance, right? Um, as, you, right. as you left West Point out to flight school where, where, where arrogance reigns supreme. And I don't say that obviously, you know, I'm kidding. It's not a, a personal site, but I, I, I've told the story a hundred times. I was a cocky Lieutenant. I was an idiot. I, if I've always said to people, if I go back and do anything over again, any regrets about my military career, I would have been a better Lieutenant. Absolutely would have been a better Lieutenant. I owed it to my soldiers. 
I owed it to my soldiers not to try to be their friend, but to be their leader. Um, and and I, I just had a young, immature attitude about it. I like to stick my thumbs in the eyes of my my superiors and buddy up with my subordinate. And that's not now. Again, this was a pre nine eleven world, so things yes. were a little different, you know. And and so the game changed a little bit, and leadership was a lot more required at a different level in a post nine eleven world because that's where I was going next. So where were you on nine eleven? Uh, you were already on active duty, obviously, correct? No. So what's interesting is, is I, I got out of the military. Um, I left my whole plan from the get go was to leave as soon as I could. I resigned my commission. I went through a junior officer hiring company. Um, I got I was working as uh, basically a manufacturing process engineer, which I did not like. And my plan was to take advantage of the company's education program, go ahead and get an MBA, which I know a lot of junior officers do now, and then go find something else. And honestly, what happened was, is, um, you know, this was in 2001. And I worked in the field of optoelectronics. Quite frankly, I don't know what the hell our equipment did. That wasn't really my role. I was like the, I was like the rep on the production floor of a manufacturing facility, which is primarily union labor. And when the dot-com bubble bursts, you know, it just crushed the tech sector. And so like where I was at, there were three manufacturing sites in the area. And within three months, all three of those manufacturing sites closed and they laid off thousands, tens of thousands of people, including me. And so what happened was, is, I'm out of a job. I didn't know how to find a job. Uh, I ended up doing the only thing I thought I could do, which is just shotgun blasting resumes and applications on monster.com, which I'm sure you're quite familiar with is absolutely the wrong way to go about doing this, but I didn't know any better. And honestly, you know, I ran out of money. I was flat broke, could not afford my apartment, couldn't afford my car moved back in with my parents. And what happened was, is I was going to go ahead. You know, one of the things I I was considering doing was maybe going to fly for the Coast Guard. And as part of that Coast Guard application, you know, because I spent a lot of, I come from that Allentown area in Pennsylvania, spent Uh a lot of my summers down on the Jersey shore. And so I thought maybe the Coast Guard would even be a better fit for me. And what happened was, is in the process of trying to go from, the army, because I was still in the IRR, right. uh, I had to get a conditional release to do a service transfer, I, which meant I had to reach out to old bosses and supervisors, which if you remember what I said about how I was as a lieutenant, I was not comfortable doing. I've got all that additional shame and embarrassment because you know here I am thinking I'm better than the army and now I'm broke and living with my parents. And I reached out to one of my mentors. I reached out to a bunch of them who fortunately were much better human beings than I was at the time. And they were all willing to talk to me. And every single one of them, you know, kept kind of pushing me to go back into the army. Now, initially, I didn't want to do any of that. You know, initially, I wanted to, you know, go fly for the Coast Guard because, again, I was still better than the army and going back with a break in service all my classmates from the academy are going to outrank me. I wasn't a real good steward of my career. So promotion wasn't a guarantee and doesn't sound like an attractive path for somebody who thinks they're better than the army. Now at the time, mind you, I was working in a dive bar in downtown Allentown, you know, the kind of job that gives you a lot of time to reflect on where your life is, (laughs) where your life's going. And what happened was, is over time, I, I kind of came around to the idea of the worst thing that could happen is I go back into the army, I get passed over for promotion, but I get three years stay of execution to maybe go find something else and redo this transition in a better place. And so I ended up typing out this message, very heartfelt message saying, hey, I'm going to come back into the army. I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to, you know, lean in and do all this stuff. And I sent that email out on the afternoon of September 10th, 2001. Oh, wow. So the next day, because I'm working in a bar at night, when 9-11 happened, I was in a Gold's gym working out in the morning. And, you know, they got those TVs all around the place. And so I know I saw, you know, one of the World Trade Center buildings is on fire. 
And, uh, you know, I got my headphones on and I'm listening to Metallica and Linkin Park and whatever else the hell was out at that time. And uh, people started, you know, kind of culminating around it. And it was like, hey, what happened? They were like, well, a plane hit the building. And we were sitting there just watching it live and then saw the second one hit. And that's when, like, everything just kind of, you know, I think we were all in that moment of suspended animation at that point where like we couldn't believe what was happening and what we were seeing and you know you couldn't use your cell phones because that was all shut down and and it was it was just a crazy time but I felt for all the shame that I felt with where I was in my life the greatest shame I felt was that I wasn't in uniform when that happened and uh so then I I came back and you know that's I'd love to tell people that I came back because I'm such a patriot. Cause that's a great story. That Pat Tillman story. But my truth is, you know, honestly, I, I made a lot of mistakes um, in the early parts of my life. And I saw going back into the army as an opportunity to basically get a mulligan and nine uh, 11 just happened to occur around the same time. So I was not in uniform. Mm-hmm. I was at a gold's gym working out. The- there, there was no part of you that thought, oh, my God, I can't believe the letter I just sent. Like, I want it back. Was there any any of that knowing that we're going to war kind of deal? No, not not at all. Uh, I think it was the opposite. I think I felt like uh, I think I was ashamed, probably more ashamed with really how I conducted myself, you know, in the first part of my career. Uh, because like you, I mean, you know, I did not take advantage of the opportunities that I had to really be a positive influence. I, I was just so self-involved, immature, and basically, you know, had a, had a real bad attitude and bad behavior and leveraged my competence to, as collateral for that. And, you know, it's, again, did, all that helped me be better the second time when I came back. Nope. I mean, a hundred percent. And look, I, I'll say this much, just additionally as a tangential sort of anecdote here, you know, uh, I've spent the better part of the last seven or eight years of my, since battalion command, really, um, you know, investing time back into lieutenants, one-on-one time with them, uh, getting on their level and speaking to them one-on-one. So if any of them have the same sort of level of immaturity or cockiness that I have, that I can at least relate to them a little bit and sort of get them on a path to use the time the right way and connect with them. Because honestly, it was just one of those things. I remember when I was leaving, uh, when I was, when I told my battalion commander, you know, um, that, that uh, I was being moved off active duty due to some combat reform initiative program that they were doing prior to nine 11, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he had said to me, he said, are you sure this is what you want? Because he's like, you know, believe it or not, you're actually really good at this. Yeah. And that, that rung in my ears. I'm like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Like it's somebody, if somebody, if a mentor would have leaned into look at all you're capable of, I might've been more apt to stay, but there's never really that one-on-one human connection, that level of empathy from senior officers down to junior ones, at least back then there was, and I'm not blaming them for my attitude by any stretch, but I'm just merely saying, I, I, I I'm trying to tell you that I spend the time now, even as an 06 to invest back into junior officers, and making sure that they understand who they are and how they can get where they're going to go and how they can maximize their best talents in uniform. So they don't end up sort of allowing their attitude to, to overtake what could be, you know, some really competent people in good positions. I I would agree with a lot of what you said there. Um, I think it was a different military back in pre nine 11 um, than what it became after 9-11, uh, particularly when, you know, you're talking about like leadership and how we interacted. You know, the Army was a very toxic zero-sum game in the 90s. Um, and uh, there was a lot of, you know, leadership through fear. And uh, I got exposed to a lot of bad leaders, which was a very big reason why I said, you know what? screw this i'm better than this um and fortunately i i did have enough good leaders that i was exposed to that i could reach out to and most for the most part the leadership that i was exposed to when i came back was exceptional so i i was very lucky that i had that very early on and i could recover from it 
All right. So you come back on active duty um, and you end up in Afghanistan in the beginning of 2002. Is that correct? Uh, it was 2003. 2003. Okay. Yes. Um, so what is it? What's the feeling like for you as you're getting ready to leave for Afghanistan? You know, you're sort of getting this second chance in the army and now all of a sudden real gets real. Any anticipation, reservation? Hey, I probably might have overplayed my hand here a little bit, or you're just swimming in it all and enjoying it. No, I I felt like this is where I needed to be. Okay. And, uh, you know, I was very proud that uh, I was going to be a part of this. Um, I felt like I felt very validated with my decision to come back. Um, now, the deployment experience, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a great one. And by that, I mean that, um, you know, when I got there, you know, the war in Afghanistan, there wasn't, it wasn't happening the way things were probably at the time in Iraq. Um, it was actually the easiest of all the deployments that I had done back then. Uh, I was operating out of uh, Bagram airfield, um, you know, I, I, my responsibilities was more about facility management and things of that nature. So, you know, I, I was really kind of one of these fob kind of guy and, um, my two deployments after that, it, that was not the case. Uh, it was much more dynamic and much more impactful, uh, in both a, probably a positive and a negative way. So, um, the first deployment, you know, I, I don't, you know, for me, it wasn't that it wasn't like the other two deployments. What did you take from that deployment, if anything, other than just the overall living a combat lifestyle experience, you know, that you carried forward? Because your next deployment was what? Not till five or six years later, correct? Yeah. So my next deployment. Yeah. So the first deployment, I don't know that I really took a whole lot of anything away from it. Um, <laughs> I, I, if I'm being honest. Um, you know, again, it was, uh, it, it just was a time in the country where things were not, you know, popping off the way they were later. And, you know, then I go back in 2000, the end of 2007 into 2008. And I like to classify that as the time when we really started losing. Um, I was an operations officer for an aviation task force operating out of Kandahar. And uh, it was remarkably dynamic um, in terms of everything that was going on. And we were woefully under-resourced. We didn't have enough assets to do the things. And we did a lot of, um, you know, very kinetic kinds of missions and operations, a lot of assaults, um, partnered with different organizations throughout RC South, RC, you know, used to just be West and then it became Southwest. And given like what was happening in the Zari Panjway, that's why I always call this the time when we really started to realize that we were like losing uh, in Afghanistan because we just, we just could not, um, we didn't have the resources really to kind of do a lot of the things that we wanted to do. And so that's why like they're just night and day the first one and then the second one when you start talk about losing um yeah but well, one directly does it personally affect you guys in the form of casualties and loss i saw it as i, I, don't, I don't know that i measured it like that per se did we experience it? Yes. Okay. Like we lost people this time. Mm -hmm. The first time we didn't lose anybody. Um, right. Well, I just know that's the seminal know. moment in a sense that it, it sort of shapes you a little bit differently. So I was curious, you know, um, from the time, from, from the concept of, well, we lost people. So that feels like a loss. And then, you know, things start in the after effects. It's hard to overcome that L when it's personal, Right. Like, even yeah. if you go out with other battles, you're still going to feel like you didn't win because you lost people. So that's kind of where I was generating the question from. Yeah, I, no, I would definitely agree with that. And, you know, the first casualty we had was probably the most experienced person in the unit. Wow. You know, and so that really affected everybody 
Um, and, you know, what's really hard is, is when you've got, and to me, this has always been the challenge of leadership that I think military people have, and they experience in very unique ways, which is that this idea of, you know, when you lose somebody like that, when you lose somebody who is uh, really a, an influencer in the organization that people look up to, uh, you can see like through their own expressions and how people are responding to it, how it affects them. And you can also sense how they're really counting on you to kind of help them get through that. And the challenge is that you're struggling to go through that yourself. You know, you're, you're trying to deal at the same time, you know, and, but you've got to be able to provide for them. And, you know, it's, to me, that's always been, you know, like what makes the leadership in, in an environment like that different? Well, it's being in situations where you don't, you don't always know what to do and you've got to make decisions and you've got to make decisions in a way that inspires a certain level of confidence with the people around you, even though you know that, Hey, yeah, this, this is might be the best course of action, but it doesn't make it a great course of action. You know, we have to be, we got to do certain things here. And a lot of times I'm really uncomfortable doing those things. And that to me is a very unique part of it. And I, I can remember when, you know, and I'll never forget, you know, when, when other service members look at you and you can just see in their face, Hey man, I, I had nothing, you know, right now I'm tapped out. And sir, you, you better kind of have something for me to get through this. Um, and I'll never forget that look that you get from people in those kinds of moments. And at the same time, you're saying to yourself, I'm kind of tapped out right now too. And, uh, you know, and I think that accumulates over time. And it got to the point that by the time I get, cause then I volunteered to stay with the unit to do the next deployment, which was like a year later. And we went right back to Southern Afghanistan. This was part of the surge. And now things were really kinetic. Yeah. And about, I don't know, two thirds the way I used to just shake uncontrollably when like I would take showers and stuff like that. Cause now we, we lost more people. We're losing more people. And you know, things are happening on a regular basis and we are doing, and I flew a lot of medevac and there are days where we're flying, you know, nine missions over a two day period. And a lot of the casualties are, you know, they're Afghans, you know, part of the ANA, but, you know, these are human beings that, you know, that you're piling what's left of them in the back of your aircraft. And that, that tends to have a bit of an effect on you uh, over time. And you start really experiencing the, and start questioning, hey, you know, like, what, what, what am I doing here? How am I helping? And, uh, you know, that's, that's when it really hit me. And that's probably when a lot of this stuff kind of hit a culminating point for me. A couple of questions here, because we, we skipped a, you know, a span of time after your first sure. second. You know, um, was there a point after your after your first deployment that sort of validated or even on that first point that sort of validated your decision to reenter the army? Like, hey, this is where I belong. This is where I'm supposed to be. You know, the past is sort of prologue, but here's where I am right now. And and I made the right decision. Was there ever that sort of thought or did that not come yeah. to if at all? I would definitely say that that happened. You know, just because, not because like uh, the deployment was uh, particularly hard, but just right. for having participated, right? Saying, "Hey, I I went off and you know I was a part of this, so to speak." I felt totally validated. I was totally committed to the army. I wanted to do it, uh, and I wanted to continue to run to and do the next thing that was asked of me. Um, absolutely. Yes. As you start to experience the idea that we're not winning anymore or we're not yeah. losing, um, in being a smart guy, uh, even borderlining arrogant, as you said, uh, you know, 
I had these conversations out loud myself to myself and with other people while we were while I was in Iraq in 05 to 06. And, you know, the idea of like, this is hopeless. Like, we're not we're not going to we're not going to win anything here. Um, yeah. Was there a point where the the actual physical loss of, of troops and men and, and people that you knew and everything else? And, and uh, you know, the idea of winning this thing strategically where they converge and then diverge for you, where you you, you started to wonder if this was the right decision to be part of this whole thing? That's an interesting question. And quite frankly, I, I don't think I ever really considered it. Um, I, I don't think I ever hit in my mind. Um, you know, initially when we went back, when I went back the end of 2007, 2008, it was, you know, hey, we're going back there. We're going to try to kick some ass. And then you're doing these missions and like you'll do a mission in one location, you know, you'll do an assault you do a cordon and search. You will kind of seize, occupy. You'll take some, you know, you'll you'll take some HVTs, you know, some high value targets, uh, detainees, and stuff like that. And then three months later, you'll go back into the same area, and you look at that, and you're like, okay, well, what, well, wait a minute. Like, we did this massive mission there before. Like, and now you're now you want to go back and it's the same. You're giving me the same intel we had the first time. Like what changed? And it was things like that that would happen. And then the other part of that is, is you start realizing that the, the operationally, the mission that we're starting to do more and more of and that we're trying to expand across the country is the medevac. And as you're doing more and more of that. And so like for me personally, like the the last time I was in Afghanistan, you know, like the mission that I, I started to fly more and more of was the medevac. Again, because that was a mission where I thought that I could contribute, you know, right. because the assaults, I mean, we're just doing one after another. And the whole concept of removing bad guys from the battlefield, right, which is what, what I kept hearing from people. It's like, well, are, are we really? I mean, because if we're removing them, then why am I going back there? and do the same mission <laughs> you keep how many bad guys they got in this town um, that's exactly it and a lot is the answer um what if for you what is the mental difference in the level of personal what's the word here personal effects slash trauma that it has on you is it because this is always curious to me and, and, we, and when i talked at the top of the show about how people you know sense battle and perceive battle in different ways. It's different for different people. The more, the thing that sort of kept you up at night more metaphorically speaking, removing bad guys from the battlefield from your gunship up above or taking body parts and, and carrying fallen soldiers off the battlefield. Like which one got into your head more and sort of maybe contributed to night tremors or bad feelings or anything else. Cause I, I think they're two different things. Yeah. Uh, and, and everybody kind of relaxed to that stimulus differently. I'll tell you exactly what it was. There was a mission that we did. It was in July of 2008. I was on a medevac team and uh, the call came out. Uh, we were going to Azizula. All right. Which is north of the Zari, north of Highway 1 of the Zari Panjway. And the call was um, for a child. And the child had been injured by one of these improvised explosive devices. And the father carried the child to this base. And so when we got the call, like, you know, we were obviously we we're focused. And, you know, for me, this was like, hey, we have an opportunity here to save a child. Right. And I think it was an eight year old kid. My son is, you know, he's like six at the time. You know, so like we're going to do something meaningful right here and now for the first time. We're going to save this child. And I remember, man, we we got off the ground. We outflew our coverage. You know, the crew is in high level of performance, synchronization, everything snapping. And, you know, we flew straight through the areas we're not supposed to fly through because we didn't care because we were going to save this kid. And I remember when we made the call to contact for the approach into landing and we asked for a condition of the casualty and the response we got was that he had expired, you know, and just that language 
expired was like from the pit of my soul was like an exhale. And, you know, we went around, we landed the aircraft, you know, cause you're, you're describing a life in the same way you describe, you know, something, you know, like a carton of milk. Right. Exactly. And I remember when we landed the aircraft and the plan was, is that we were going to bring the casualty back to um, the Afghan hospital in Kandahar. Right. So that was the plan. So very dusty area, go put the aircraft down, land in the dust. And what happens is, is, you know, as the dust starts to clear, you know, cause the medic jumps off the right side of the aircraft and whatnot. And, you know, and I'll look out to the right to see, you know, them kind of disappear. And what happened was, is I actually connected eyes with that father. And that was, and that is the thing that will, that haunts me now. Um, and quite frankly, probably will for the rest of my life, because what I saw there was like in his eyes was not like an Afghan. It wasn't a terrorist. It was a father that lost his kid. And that moment changed the entire dynamic of this experience for me. That's when I started to have the shakes, the tremors and all of that. It was that moment. Uh, when that happened there there's is there any way that if you were to write down a list good bad right that's at the top of the bad list yeah. if you listed all the good is there anything that even comes close to sort of quelling some of that bad in any size way shape or form for you in terms of the war itself in terms yeah in terms of your deployment experience because like look you're not you, you know if you're not there, I mean, then- uh, the, on the good side, like we, it was very, very active, very kinetic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the guys from you know Second Brigade of the 101st, those guys are heroes. I mean, they are brave men and women. The things they did were absolutely amazing. And our main focus was, as the aviation unit in the area, was to support them. But what they went through was ridiculous. And when we were leaving, we had actually secured that area around Kandahar. Like there was a salient of, okay, we've got this area secure, which was the whole point was to try and provide some security so that that legitimate Afghan governance could kind of slide into there, into that and backfill that. And so we did do that now, didn't last, but, you know, in terms of for that moment, like that was the positive. Our job was to support that effort and secure that very difficult area. And at least in a small measure, we did that. It's hard to, and you understand this, uh, and, and listen, that's a powerful story and, and, on one hand, I'm sorry that you had to go through it, but on the other hand, I know it's shaped a lot of what, the work you're doing today, uh, and and you're not doing it probably without it. So they're, they're from an outsider's perspective, there's a little bit of a positive trade-off. But um, you know, I, I we spend so much terms, so much time in the military defining things by mission accomplishment, right, wrong, win, loss, right. Like we we try to keep sure. things very black and white. Uh, you know what we don't do well is sit in a gray area too long because we're uncomfortable with it and we're not good at it. And, you know, uh, we, we don't know who's in charge in the gray area. Um, I would, I would ask you that, you know, when you talk about the things that you had to go through since that experience and everything else, what has become clear to you? What has become black and white to you about, you know, the, the good from the experience versus the bad. I mean, again, I think the bad, you talked about the night tremors and everything else, but, what what have you been able to pull from that experience that you've turned into something positive? I would say probably the biggest thing is just the heroic nature of so many Americans and men and women who are infinitely braver than me um, with tremendous amounts of courage, you know, like the, the, the NCO that we put on a hoist, you know, and we lowered her down into an area where 
you know, and I, and I wasn't even on this mission, but we kept talking about it, you know, because we had to do a hoist because there were so many trip wires and the trees and the LZs were, were rigged and all this, that, and, and she went through that hoist, uh, to try and save a life, you know, um, the situation where we've had pilots fly in, in conditions that they should have never have flown in order to save a life. Um, you know, and the sacrifice that men and like to witness the sacrifice that men and women were willing to make for the sake of each other, to me is probably, you know, the, the, the best expression of what I would say is our humanity. And I, I did get to see that. Um, so I, you know, that is the thing that uh, I think I can, I think most of us who have been in these places can say, Hey, I really appreciate that. Um, in a way that, you know, when you come back to regular society, I don't know that we see that all the time, but we definitely experienced it then. You know, when you get back from your last deployment, it's what, 2011 timeframe? Yes. Okay. Um, obviously you have plenty of career left. What point in time did the accumulation of events and the one you spoke about in particular start to grab a hold of you that you recognize that, Hey, I'm, I'm not in a good headspace or that didn't happen until after you were officially out of uniform. No, it, it happened pretty quickly. Um, we were driving, uh, when I signed out of the 101st, we were driving, uh, back to in Pennsylvania to, you know, where both my wife and my parents are from. And we were going through, um, you know, the mountains of central Pennsylvania. And, uh, I, I ended up having a, a crippling panic attack while I was driving through the mountains. Um, you know, the, to the point of like, I could not, um, I'd sweat through my shirt, um, and I'm on the highway and I barely got the car to the side of the road. And my parents had to drive out from where they were in the Allentown area, like three hours in order to come get us so that they can, one of them can drive because I couldn't drive. And, um, you know, my heart was pounding so hard in my chest that like, as I'm trying to hold the car on the road, my vision's bouncing with like the beat of my heart. That's how powerful that was in that moment. And, uh, when I pulled over, uh, you know, I was like frozen in the seat until my wife, because she had no idea why I pulled over, uh, at the, like the next exit or whatever. And when I, when my eyes locked with her, I just absolutely broke down. And I was like sobbing, like completely uncontrollably because like, I, f I felt like, you know, Hey, you're coming up over that three mile mountain and you're putting the aircraft down in the Zari Panjoy kind of a deal again, you know, where you, you're looking out over the horizon and you're going to dive it. And, you know, I felt like I was going to lose control of that car. And, uh, my son was sleeping in the back. And so that was, that was the moment when I knew that like, Hey, I, I'm not right from all this stuff. Did you address it with your chain of command? Well, I, well, so I just signed out of that unit and now I was signing into the Pentagon because I was going to be working at the Pentagon. Did I address it? Yeah. I talked to my boss, uh, when I got back to the Pentagon and he was very, receptive, very encouraging, um, you know, about me getting, you know, working on that and trying to get some help. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I did that a number of times and it, it's been, I don't know, man, it's been in fits and starts with that. And, and, you know, obviously I'm still dealing with it sure. you know, because I, I think that, Hey, I got this under control and then you drop dead of a heart attack you know, while you're out running. So uh, you've, got me, you've got me nervous now. Um, <laughs> personal question. Um, sure. Are the, and, and this is just from my relatability because I, I know I feel about it. Are, are, are sometimes the flashbacks and the memory of the panic attack and everything else worse than the actual events? Oh yeah. Because for uh, me, absolutely. like I have more crystal clear memories of the moments where I had panic attacks and flashbacks than I actually do of the actual moment I was having a panic attack and flash back about. But does that make sense? 
Yeah, I because when you're in the event, like the reaction makes sense. Like that's that's how I've kind of, you know, uh, I make sense of it. And but when I have a when I wake up in the middle of the night and you don't know where you are, you know, like as for example, and you completely sweat through to see sheets, and you, my heart's racing and I'm breathing uncontrollably. And the thing I got to deal with now is that I actually had a heart attack. So like when things like this happen. You know, like these are, these are not like, okay, you're just having a panic attack. It's not a heart attack. Like I can't really say that anymore. Make sure it's not the real deal. (laughs) Right. So it's got this compounding effect that I'm trying to, to deal with. And, you know, like, and unfortunately I think this is something I'm going to end up dealing with for the rest of my life um, for what it's worth. But I totally agree with you that, that the event like the aftermath of the event has a greater resonance than the event itself Yeah. in terms of just the visceral qualities of it. Um, I don't understand why that is. Uh, and you know, you know what the, the thing for me is, and I don't know if they relate to this. Um, when I think more about the flashbacks that I've had and, and what has gone on, I get more anxious than anything that another one is. I'm going to bring another one back. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm almost, Reed mentally prepping myself for the next one to happen. I don't know when and where it's going to happen or why it's going to happen. Um, because some of them happened right after I got back. Some of them happened two or three years later and I had no idea that they were going to happen. Um, you know, and so that whole sort of transaction in your head that this thing is looming on deck somewhere. And I just don't know when, you know, we're going to come up triple seven on the jackpot and it's going to go off kind of deal. And, and that sort of, cripples you a little bit mentally in, in the deepest recesses of your mind. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Uh, so how did you know that it was time for you to get out of uniform? Was it directly related to what was going on with you mentally? So what happened was, is like, I had to fight to go on that last deployment. You know, I had an RFO and my boss had to make some phone calls. His boss made some phone calls to get me out of that assignment because I wanted to be with the unit during the, the surge, I was willing to go away from my family. I was willing to do all of that. When I became a battalion commander, you know, we were like the last rung in the army ladder in terms of priorities. And then all the way up into the point to where we were notified that, Hey, what can you send out in the next 30 days to, to all these different theaters? And when that happened, you know, like I was glad that you know they didn't want me they didn't want us to go they just want pieces and parts like i wasn't fighting to send the whole battalion like i was no longer running towards the sound of the gunfire and that's that to me was you know the the moment where i said hey it's time for me to go um and i guess i kind of realized that before i even took battalion command my wife and I were were pretty content potentially of just retiring in the, in the DC area. Um, and then the opportunity came out and we talked about it for a while and said, okay, we can do this one more go because obviously she's concerned about my health, you know, and, and how much more could I take? But that to me was, Hey, it's absolutely the right time to get out because you're not fighting to go on this deployment. Yeah, I certainly can understand that. Um, so when you get out of the military, do you know what you want to do? Do you under, do you understand how you want to uh, proceed with the rest of your life? And how much is it driven by what you're personally dealing with? I had no idea. Um, you know, I, I had opportunities to help the veteran community, which I thought would be valuable. Um you know, because I, I knew what, what I had been going through. Um, I, I got connected with a bunch of different opportunities that just weren't the right fit for me. Um, you know, when I, I tell people, you know, when I, when you add in like the first year and a half after I retired and you put that together with like my 19 month break in service, that's like a three-year arc where I had about eight different jobs. And I really stumbled into this when I was getting my MBA and, you know, some of the career counselors suggested, Hey, have you ever thought about this as a profession? And at the time I never thought about it. And after I got 
another job offer that was something that I knew I didn't want to do, that's when I started to take a look at it. How do you um, begin to understand how to help somebody else when you're not sure if you can help yourself? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think. Like empathy is the easy answer, right? Like, you know, I, I, I can understand you, right? Like I can, I can, I I can, you know, relate to you and everything else. But I I think, I I guess, let me try to not to be so vague in the question. How do you begin to understand the process to help others when you're in the middle of figuring out your process? I think that's part of why you've been through that struggle is to help others. I'm a big proponent of the whole hero's journey cycle that Joseph Campbell model of, you know, those things that you experience in that kind of unknown world of adventure. Those are meant to inform how you serve society on the other side. And so that's why, you know, I think that those experiences are given to you for a reason. And the challenge is, is how do you integrate those experiences in a way that can make life better for others? And that's really what I've been trying to do uh, for the past, since I retired back in 2016. Um, When you... uh when you, when you start this process, how do you know that you want to go into, you know, this coaching role and, and you end up starting and founding your own, your own company for it? Like, I mean, that's a serious endeavor. So uh, where does ordinary hero coaching come from and, and why'd you start it? So it's the hero part is part of that hero's journey. You know, it's based on that. The ordinary part is, um, you know, when you leave the military, you return to the ordinary world. And so you're no longer a hero in the context of how society sees you. Now you've just got to be ordinary. The extraordinary part of you is everything you experienced. And how do you, you know, recalibrate all of those things in such a way that you can lead and serve society? And that's really what inspires me is the ability to help men and women do that. Um, and find that passion uh, for life after the service. Because like me, I believe that they've gone through a lot of these very difficult experiences. Uh, There's a lot of lessons that the rest of society can glean from those. Um, And I want to inspire them to step into roles that can help improve our society. I mean, we're, we're more polarized. We're more I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that, you know, are, I would say are not going well across our society nowadays. You said and it. I think that military leaders, based on their experience, they have what it takes to help us navigate these, these very uncertain, complex challenges. You know, the deal is, is we've got to inspire them to do that. And that's where I see my part as coming, um, part of my role. Yeah, military leaders have all the, uh, the 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 keys to figure out how to get us through this, but yet none of them can get elected because the system is broken monetarily. <laughs> Different conversation. Um, you know, it, I'm curious about as you've gone through with ordinary hero coaching. You know, uh, and I've learned this from working with vets myself. You know, th- there are times you go in there with the best of intentions to help them, and they end up helping you. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment? Was there anything that stood out to you in the process of doing this for the last couple of years? where in working with one particular individual, a a light bulb goes on for you in a certain area and says, I didn't know that until I met this person or started talking to this person. I think in many ways that happens a little bit with everybody that I work with. Um, Like I start to see things in an aggregate that I have not seen before in terms of, you know, like, like you hit on earlier, everybody's journey is so unique And um, I'm learning in working with a lot of these people that even though our journeys are so different, that in many ways, we're we're cut from the same cloth, having to deal with this aspect of, of service and sacrifice, and this inherent desire to lead the 
you know, the fray into a, you know, into a positive place. Uh, and so it, it's been very helpful to me through, through all of this to do this work. In your experience with the coaching, um, it, what's the difference in transition? Um, and this is not an easy answer to give because there's, I think there's multiple ones. So, but what's the difference in transition for somebody who has, for lack of a better way to phrase it, a high level of PTSD versus a, a mid-level or a low level? Like, is transition harder or easier based off of something like that? Or is there's no way to sort of formulate the two or correlate the two together? Well, I think, I think there's a couple of things that are at play there. All right. So like the first thing I would say is, is that like the unresolved trauma is something that has to be resolved in the individual. Right. And I worked with plenty of people who've had, those experiences. Now I, I can't help with that. That's not what coaches do, but there is an aspect of being able to um, really put all of your experience in a context, you know, through this idea of post-traumatic growth where, you know, you are, even though your foundation of beliefs may have been rattled a bit, that you can set new goals, you can integrate new perspectives, you can see new opportunities which is where I think coaching really can help military leaders and to be able to see that. Um, so what I would say is, is that, and I think one of the reasons why a lot of the resilience programs don't work in the military is, is because they're trying to put a bandaid on something that, you know, is, is not, you've got to deal with the unresolved trauma. Like you have to handle that first before, you know, you can't go through, physical therapy for your shoulder until after you have the shoulder surgery. You know, there's no point in doing the physical therapy. And that's what I think a lot of these initiatives are, is that you're trying to, you know, do some physical therapy for something and you haven't healed it yet. And so the first part is, is you got to heal that. Once you've healed that, now we can set an intention for how we grow from it. And so I think those are the two elements that I think we need to spend more time focusing on. And by the way, the website, ordinaryherocoaching.com, where you guys can go check out all of Jason's work and the classes and tutorials and everything that's there. It's, uh, it, it's, there's a lot there on the, on the website to learn. Just a couple more thoughts here. Um, sure. I'm, I'm curious. I asked this question a lot. Um, what would, you know, battalion commander Jason tell, is it, are you still Lieutenant Jason? Ron Caroni, when you came back after the IRR, were you still a lieutenant back then? Were no, you, I was a captain. Okay. So what would, what would battalion, if you were your own battalion commander, right? Mm -hmm. What would you say to yourself as a company commander, as you started this journey back in the army that, you know, you would need to know, given, you know, what's ahead of you? Uh, great question. Uh, I think for me, um, what I would say is, is that, you know, leadership is, it's about showing up in moments where you are really uncomfortable and those uncomfortable, it's going to pay to not know what to do uh, or to doubt what you are going to do. But the mantle of leadership is your ability to kind of take that on for the good of the rest of the group. So when you find these uncomfortable situations, uh, you've got to show up, you've got to be willing to stand. And even though you're unsure of yourself, you have to communicate, hey, this is what we're going to do. And here's where we're going or how we're going to do this. Um, and yeah, it's going to be hard for you to do that. But that to me is, that's the moment of leadership, you know, like in the moments where you're not sure what to do and you're not sure of the outcome, do you still have the courage to stand? And I think that that's something that I learned that it didn't matter how much you told me or you tried to teach me through different scenarios, man, I wouldn't have gotten it. And uh, so if I had a chance to have a conversation, that's kind of what I would say. 
what does um, the founder of Ordinary Hero Coaching um, tell Captain Ron Caroni about how to mentally prepare for the trauma and the experience that's ahead of you and how to deal with it going forward? Like, is there a tool in your toolkit you wish you had a mental way to deal with things? Maybe that might have quelled the anxiety, might have put some of these, you know, uh, or, or dissipated some of these night tremors, things of that nature. Is there anything you can think of? I, so what I, I did a lot of research on, you know, like just kind of reading about like physiologically what happens. And I think I would have done more of that, uh, understanding the physiology of like what happens in a stress response, what happens through, um, you know, a continuous stress response, you know, when the sympathetic nervous system is constantly being activated, what impact does that have on you? Because I think understanding it now, it has really helped me to, to just kind of recognize what's going on and why I feel the things the way that I do, um, like what's happening on a biological, physiological level. And I think we, we don't do a very good job of teaching military people that we talk about, Hey, here's the Yerkes Dodson stress curve, but we don't get into you know, hey, this is what happens when the amygdala is activated. This is what happens when you have a hijack. And this is the, this is some of the responses that you're going to have. Um, I think the lack of understanding adds to the anxiety. Um, it doesn't, and having the understanding doesn't completely eliminate it, but I would say it mitigates it because at least you understand what's happening uh, as you're going through it. And so I can understand it, even though sometimes I can't really control it if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think it does. Again, I, I, in, in my personal, you know, journey, I, I could, I, I know when the anxiety is coming, I could physically feel it. Right. Like you said, it's like a, a biophysical reaction that goes on uh, within my body. Um, and I don't know if I'm a hundred percent doing it right. I just sort of know how to uh, slow it down or prevent it from becoming more than what I want to be able to handle. Like right. I know, I've got to get myself to a spot by myself and start breathing the right way and, and get myself to calm, you know, so I don't put more anxiety on top of the anxiety because I'm having the anxiety. You know, it's that, that vicious cycle you get in. I'm trying to stop it so badly. It's causing more anxiety. And then now I'm getting double the anxiety. Yeah. I think mindfulness is a big thing too, that we don't spend a lot of time working on. Um, That's been very helpful for me. That's my cardiac rehab was a lot of mindfulness exercises uh, we, we don't do a lot of that because we consider that touchy feely stuff. But again, if you start looking at the science behind it, cause there is a lot of science behind it, you, you start to understand how this works. Uh, it's not a whole bunch of woo, you know, there's a lot of research that goes behind this. That at least gives you a little bit of faith that, you know, we've tried to put some science behind this whole thing. All right. I, I know you, you, uh, you need to run it. Just tell me about the commit, the commit foundation and what you're doing with them. Cause, uh, uh, you know, the special operations community is always uh, much bigger than we think it is. So the Commit Foundation basically works with, um, you know, a lot of senior leaders and special operators as they're navigating the transition process, uh, typically through retirement. And what makes it unique is that you get one-on-one intimate conversations about where you are and where you want to go with the next phase of your life. Um, these are not group sessions. They are private, confidential, one-on-one conversations where you're creating a higher sense of awareness about where you are in your life and the goals that you want to achieve, and then subsequently paths you can take to achieve them. And so I believe it's um, really kind of an exemplar program of what should be available to combat veterans, military leaders, retirees as they're leaving the service. And so that's what the Commit Foundation does. What um, what do you tell your family about what you go through? Even your kids. I mean, I'm sure they have questions, right? Well, I, I was very honest with my kids after the heart attack. Um, and I just kind of answer the questions that they're willing to ask. And that's, I'm happy to to talk about it because it helps them because, you know, obviously, you know, that it affected my kids when, you know, when they found out their dad had a heart attack. And so 
I wanted to be completely open with them. So if they wanted to ask me some questions, I'd let them ask me questions. Um, the rest of my family, um, people don't really want to talk about it and I'm okay with that. I don't really, I don't love talking about it. I think like most of us either. Um, but I'm going to be brutally honest if they ask me about it. Uh, why? Because I went through that experience and I think we owe it to the people who haven't been there to tell the story of what we've been through. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's why I'm on this podcast. No, and again, I, I think it's great. I, I, I certainly, you know, um, love the concept for ordinary hero coaching. I think it's, it's, it's so needed and so necessary. But, you know, what, what drew me to your story more than anything, I mean, you know, sort of, I hate to phrase it, the heart attack, heart attack sort of punctuated it just because it was just like, oh, my God, here's another layer in this whole thing that, you know, uh, was part of the whole story. But, you know, there's just a um, a continual sort of rise up factor to your story where, it was, you know, you just – uh, continue to to level up and and you know try to overcome all this stuff and and the idea that you're still helping others in the post uh, military world is is absolutely outstanding. So again, ordinaryherocoaching.com is where you can go. Any any other places they need to go to check out your work or anything? Oh, oh wait, I did forget you wrote a book too, didn't you? Wrote a couple, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, we forgot to pump these, and how shameful of me to not mention. Okay. Go ahead, give me give me the books real quick. So the first, one of the books is uh, Beyond the Military. Um, it's something I give away for free for people who go, who I get through the Commit Foundation. And it basically operationalizes the transition process. And the other one is called The Other Side, which is the story of this heart attack and then integrating a lot of aspects of positive psychology in terms of the transition process. So the first book, Beyond the Military, co-written with uh, Dr. Shauna Springer. And then the second one is called The Other Side, Flourishing in Veteran Life. Dr. Shauna Springer was a, uh, we, we actually had her on, on as a guest on the, the Hazard Ground to level her expertise here with all of us. So uh, certainly a, uh, a reputable source to say the least, but okay. So again, we can get him anywhere. Ordinary Hero Coaching, check out the books. Uh, I, I it, Listen, I'm glad you decided to do this. I'm, I'm so happy that we, we got to hear your story. There's so much to it. Continued health continued success uh, in all you're doing, um, you know, stay calm and, and keep, what, is, what do they say? Keep calm and whatever, keep calm and coach on. I don't know what, what you say, but okay. <laughs> I, I appreciate your time as always. Jason Ronconi, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the time today. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 